a few years back, Valerie and I were, were serving in Prague as, as missionaries, as many of you know, and we had volunteer teams come all the time, and these teams would come in, and they'd do a variety of assignments. They'd, some of the teams were good. Some of the teams were probably just not, not as good is a kind way to put that. But we have one team in particular, a team from Georgia. Now, these students came from all over the state of Georgia, a variety of universities. They had all applied to the state to be able to come over and to serve as missionaries, and so the state funded them to come over. And we had these guys for about two weeks, a group of about 14 or 15 students. And they were awesome. And they did everything. I mean, we did evangelism. We handed out Bibles. We did sports ministry. They worked in schools. They did research for me. I, Valerie and I were doing college ministry, and so we wanted to find out where college students spent time so to find out the best place for us to plant a Bible study. And so we had them walking up and just engaging people in conversation and talking to people. And so these guys, for a period of about two weeks, did this, and they were very faithful to the task. Not once did we ask them to do something, did they welch and say, oh, I don't know if I want to do that, even when it came to eating Czech cafeteria food at the public school. I mean, they even ate things that, that I didn't eat. And they're like, have you had this before? I was like, no, but I'm sure it's edible. You're not going to eat it? Oh, you know, I'm busy. I brought a Snickers. It satisfies. And so I don't need that. And so these guys are very willing to do anything. And so at the end of their two weeks, like you do with almost every volunteer team that comes over, you have a day, day and a half or so built in at the end of their trip. You celebrate the things they've done. You take them out on a little bit of sightseeing. You're rewarding them for the 14, 15, 16-hour days that they put in for the two weeks they're there. You're, you're taking them out, letting them take their picture in front of the castle. You're making them or letting them not eat nasty cafeteria food. You, so all these awesome things. And so it came to that day, and we're taking them around. We take them up to the castle. They're taking pictures. They're taking pictures of the city. They're buying every souvenir that is a souvenir. And so postcards, coffee mugs, gag gifts. Some people would splurge and buy crystal. And so they're doing all these things, and we tell them, hey, look, you guys have eaten some truly shameful food, so today we're going to take you to get a good old-fashioned American hamburger. And so we take them to this place called Bohemia Bagel. Now, it's not just the burger that these students want. What they want is the ever-elusive free refill, which is very hard to find in Europe. I mean, you, you pay $4 for a tiny Coke, and you pay $4 for another tiny Coke. Well, this place, you pay $4.50, and you get what they refer to as a bottomless soda with ice. This is a rare find indeed. And so the students are excited. We go in. We're standing in line waiting to get the hamburger. And one of the girls in the group starts to hyperventilate. Her breathing becomes erratic. And I'm like, man, bottomless soda, good thing. Burger, better thing. But you need to calm down. And things aren't getting any better. I mean, she's so excited. And then all of a sudden, it's ecstatic utterances. The, I'm like, man, this girl is hard up for some soda. We don't have Dr. Pepper here. We have Coke. I don't know why you're so excited. And, 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 and frailly, her arm starts to come up, and she just kind of, hit him. She spotted a famous person. She spotted a, a, a bona fide celebrity. She spotted an A-list actor in this dive of a burger joint that we had taken them to. 
And she's, she's so excited, and they begin to make their way over to them in this group of, of swirling, ever-increasing estrogen, and with stalker-like finesse, and they get over there, and there's this steady tirade of, you're so awesome, you're so great, you're so handsome. Can I touch you? Okay, that was too soon. And so they're, they're hitting him up on all this conversation and talking to him, and it rolls around. What are you guys doing here? They're like, oh, we've been on this mission trip. It's been great. We're helping out, working in the schools, doing all this stuff. What are you doing here? He's like, oh, I'm filming a movie. And they're just like, ha, ha, can we take pictures with you? So they took pictures with him, and then they started asking him, so have you done so-and-so? Have you seen this in the city? And he's like, well, you know, I've been really busy. And they said, well, have you, seen the, have you been up to the castle? Because when you go up to the castle ground, there's this beautiful church up there. Have you seen that? And he's like, well, yeah, you know, I, I, I got up there like a week ago, but man, I was so wasted that I just kind of crawled up the steps. I just kind of crawled up the steps to this church. Man, you guys would be so proud of these students. You see, they took what this guy had said, and they segued into the most conviction-laden, gospel-rich, evangelistic presentation that I've ever heard. And he felt a conviction, and he proclaimed Jesus as Lord. See, that's really what I anticipated they would have said. But instead, he said all that, and what they said was, well, it happens. And so I, I'm there, just horrified. These students that had handed out Bibles, and they're beating the streets, and they're eating nasty checked food, all for the sake of the gospel, that when faced with this, this you know, recitation of this guy's inebriated sightseeing adventure, their response is, <laughs> It happens sometimes. You see, in the face of this person who that they're so enamored with, so given to elevate his decisions, they showed partiality. They showed bias for him and for his decisions. You see, and bias and favorability and, 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 and sharing these things isn't unique to the fact that we face a celebrity, we, we bow down. But bias and favorability... And showing partiality is something that you and I deal with on a day-by-day basis, is it not? And so James gives us a word on partiality. We're going to be reading in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 today. James, writing, addressing the subject of partiality, starts in verse 1, and he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and you say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who, the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill, fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the whole law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. 
For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. We have 13 verses to get through today. Last week it took us about 23 minutes to do three verses. But I think if we all put our minds to it, I talk fast and you listen quick, we can make it through it. Do you guys believe it? All right. Man, I'm so encouraged. All right, so James opens up. And he does what James is fond of doing thus far in the letter as we've seen. He issues a command, right? James doesn't beat around the bush. He's not taking time to get there. You'll remember the book started off and James said, hey, look, this is who I am. Now that we've settled that, count it all joy when you suffer. And everybody stood back and they said, hey, nice to meet you. Our name is. And so James here turns to the subject of partiality. He doesn't hem-haw around. He doesn't enter into polite platitudes saying, man, you guys are doing such a good job over here. Let me encourage you. But FYI, let's work on this. Let's work on partiality. You see James recognizing that there are brothers and, and, and fellow Christians, writes to them, he says, my fellow brothers, show no partiality. My fellow brothers, don't, don't play favorites. Don't have a bias towards other people. Don't make distinctions out there, and as you look at people, just don't do it. And so they step back, and they start evaluating that. And then James spreads it out a little wider. He says, not just don't do it, but as at the same time you're holding your faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, in that, don't show favorability. Don't show partiality. And so they're, they're thinking, and they're thinking about what James is writing there. And the point James is making isn't that, hey, look, if you guys go out and you're impartial, if you go out and you show partiality to one group or another, you're only going to attract people like that. You see, if you go out and you only uh, kowtow to the rich people, then then you're going to have to, to do your whole structure, you're going to have to do everything in your church to where you only attract rich people. So you're going to need a nicer parking lot, you're going to need a finance team that's very kind with them, and then it kind of kisses up to them. You're going to need to structure things around this one group of people. You see, James doesn't look at it like that and give them the pragmatics of why partiality is a bad idea. James looks at it like this and says, partiality is opposed to the gospel. James looks at it and says partiality, favoring one group over another, is is completely opposed to the gospel. He says, in in essence, as you are a Christian, don't do this. Doing this is the opposite of being a Christian. As you hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, show no partiality. He is the Lord of glory. We read in Hebrews 1.3 that, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, when you look at Hebrews 1.3, the NIV translates it as reflection, essentially the way that the moon passively shows light. But we see in other translations, it is the radiance that Jesus in and of himself shows light for who he is. Jesus, as the Lord of glory, shines light on all areas of your life. In those areas of your life where you're showing partiality, where you're favoring one group over another, it's exposing even that, and it is opposed to the gospel. Now, James writes that, and they get that. And then he starts zeroing in. He starts needling in one particular area 
for you should not show partiality. And so he spills it out for us in, in verse 2 and verse 3. And it's set up like this. We see at the back of the church, the door swings wide open, and we see two visitors walk in. Now the first visitor walks up, and he is, he, <laughs> brother's loaded. I mean, he, he's going all the nice places. He's not shopping on Travelocity. He's not doing Priceline. He's calling his own travel agent saying, book it. You know where I want to stay. You know the things I like to do. Make it nice. I don't want to wait in lines. The poor guy's just saying, hey, I'll carry a bag. And so they walk into the back of the church, and, and it, it's distinctly different. But i got to be honest with you. Every time I've thought about this account prior to this week when I'm working on it, this is how I picture the rich man. Guy walks in, snappy suit, shiny shoes, slick hair, maybe a Rolex. Not sure if the guy's married. Sometimes when I think about him, he is. Sometimes when I think about him, he's not. But maybe he's got a ring of some sort on. That's how I think about the rich man. Pretty tame, right? I mean, any of us could pass for that. But the way the text is set up, this isn't a tame display of wealth. Now imagine this. Guy walks in the back of the church. First thing you notice, the guy's got an iPod, or uh, he's got an iPhone, rather. He doesn't have an iPod. Poor guy might have one. The rich guy definitely doesn't have an iPod. He's got an iPhone. He's got an iPhone 5. And the thing's in the otter box that's been dipped in gold. And so he takes it out. And he's just like, check this out. Bet yours is it dipped in gold. And you're like, no, it's not, actually. How does that work? Do you get a great signal through the gold? And he's like, yeah, actually, you do. And so you have that little conversation. It's very careful, very witty. You look down at the guy's shoes, and he is, has the little tassels with gold hanging off the end of them. Now, why anybody would want that, I don't know, but this rich guy does. And you look, and he's got $100 bills just kind of falling out of his pockets. Oh, did I drop that? Well... I'd pick it up, but I'd have to do something to do that. So let's just leave that there. I mean, the guy is tricked out. This guy, in fact, has such a preoccupation with wanting to display his wealth that he has two rings on every finger. So where you and I can do this when we wear rings, he walks around with his fingers straight out because he can't bend them, but it doesn't matter because he has somebody to do that for him anyway. Face itch. You. Thank you. I would have done it, but I'd have to take off a ring to do it. This guy is decked out with gold. This guy has gold chains that hang around his neck to the point where it makes Mr. T look like a pauper. This guy has, has sought out every form and every fashion to display his wealth and is doing it to an excellent degree. You might have your hair frosted. This guy has his gold tipped. I mean, this guy is rich. That's what the text wants us to understand. It's not this tame display of wealth that you and I have come to recognize as somebody having money. This guy wants everybody to know that he's rich. So he walks into the back of the church. And we've got, you know, John Doe Usher over here on the side, sees the guy and says, this is a match made in an offering plate. I have got to get this guy to a great seat. And so he escorts him to the perfect seat. And we all know it. It's the seat that's, you know, the, the padding's just perfect. It's not worn out too much. The air's not too hot, not too cold. The speaker's not too loud, and it's not too soft. And it's close to an exit, so you don't have to shake hands with very many people on your way out. You know where I'm talking about. It's that seat. And, and they take him to that seat. And they put him in that seat, and that's the seat of honor. Now, right about the same time, this rich guy's going through this presentation, and, and the light is shining around, shining around him, bouncing off all the gold that he has on him. We see a poor guy walk in. 
Now, the poor guy doesn't need any introduction because we smelled him long before we saw him. And you might think, well, this type of thing doesn't happen. You see, Valerie and I were attending a church in Prague, a Czech Baptist church. And we're sitting in there, it's the first Sunday of the month, so we're going to do the Lord's Supper. And we're facing, uh, facing the baptistry. And we begin to, begin to smell something. And it's, it's this smell. Let me get crass for a second. It's like somebody took a diaper, threw up in the diaper, carried it in the trunk of their car in the Texas heat for three or four weeks, took it out, and wore it on a necklace. You guys don't, it's, it's like you like that or something. It's not CK1. I mean, this guy, this guy stinks. This guy stinks. I think he had soiled himself some days in advance and just hadn't bothered to do anything about it. This guy reeked. You see, when this guy came into the Czech Baptist church, we, we smelled this thing, and you begin to look around to see if somebody around you is has, you know, having issues. And then you see this guy walk in, and the thought that came into my mind, Man, I hope he doesn't sit beside me. Because I'm having a really hard time stifling a gag, and he's 30 feet away. And so he comes in, and he finds a seat. and People are just, they're making a path for this guy, because nobody wants to get near him. And he goes, and he sits in on the, on the far side over by himself. And then my mind turns to, man, I hope he falls asleep before we take the Lord's Supper. Because in the Czech church, we practice the common cup, so everybody's drinking out of one cup. And... I don't mind sharing with the people I'm around. I'm not crazy about the idea, but I can get over it. But I really don't want to share it with this guy. You see, in that moment, I made a distinction that the gospel was suitable for everybody around me, but not for this guy. That the gospel had importance and impact on the lives of everybody around me, but this guy wasn't worthy of the gospel because of the way he looked, because of the way he smelled. And so he was treated radically differently. And we see the same thing here in James. Writing a couple thousand years before, the same treatment of a poor person. This guy walks in and his clothes are, are tattered and torn. And the reception that the rich guy had been given was essentially being carried to his seat. The poor guy is told, hey look, we've got a column over there. Why don't you go stand beside it? I'd appreciate it if you didn't touch the column. If you have to, I understand, but if you could just kind of hide yourself a little bit behind the column, that would be great. Or the other response they give to the poor man is, hey, look, my feet stink, so do you. Sit by them, maybe you'll cancel each other out. You see, they give a steady response of partiality to the rich man and to the poor man. And see, in verse 4, James responds, and he says, Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James pierces to the heart of the matter. And he says, hey, look, you're not just picking where people sit, but you're making value judgments. You're saying that, that those people that are richer, those people that are smarter, those people that are more successful are more worthy of the gospel than those people that, that give evidence that they don't bring anything to the equation. You're making judgment calls in your life based upon what you can perceive not based upon what God sees as true. And then we see that fleshed out some more in verses 5 through 7. Here I see it says, Listen, my beloved brethren. He's talking about the poor. He says, Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in the faith and heirs of the kingdom of God? James, possibly reflecting upon what we saw in chapter 1 in verses 9, 10, and 11, 
says, you'll remember that the poor person, what are they supposed to boast in? They're supposed to boast in the fact that the king of glory came down and elevated them. They're supposed to boast in the fact that they brought nothing to the equation. If it was a meal, all they're bringing is an appetite. And the God of glory came in and he elevated this person. They boast in the fact that God raised them high. You see, God has chosen the poor in the world. God has come into the poor person's life and has chosen them for salvation. We read in Matthew 5, read that blessed are the poor for they shall receive the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who do not come thinking that they bring something to the equation. Blessed are those who have an awareness that God is the one who saves. God has chosen the poor, but we see in this example that the average person in the church, they've dishonored the poor person. They've dishonored the poor person. Verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor person. When we stop and look at that, you think, okay, okay. I can remedy on that, okay? All I've got to do is go up to the poor person and say, hey, uh, senor pobrecito, I'm so sorry that you're so poor, or, you know, Mr. No Money, or, I'm sorry, what's your name? He's like, what is, you know, John. You're like, well, that's not a very good poor person's name. What if I call you something else, something that's more fitting for a poor person? And we see that we try and make some type of restitution to the poor person. We want to apologize to them for putting them in a bad seat, thinking bad thoughts about them. And then we think we're somehow clear, we think we're somehow past it, that we've made it past it. But if you flip over to Proverbs 17.5, you read a shocking word about that behavior. You see, in Proverbs 17.5, we read that if you are to make fun of a poor person, If you're to ridicule a poor person, then you ridicule their maker. You see all these value judgments that they put on this person, all these decisions that they made based upon the way the person looks, they're not just making an evaluation on on how the person should be received. They're not just causing offense at the person, but they're offending his maker. They're offending God. They are sinning against a holy God in their actions and in their evaluations of the person's worth at hearing and potentially receiving the gospel. And then James wants them to see just exactly the folly of their behavior. You see, it's not just that they're valuing the rich person, but they're valuing people that are opposed to them. We see three ways that the rich person is opposed to them. He says, are not the rich the ones who oppress you? <laughs> what, what in the world are you doing? Why would you want to give premier seating to the one that's coming in and he's oppressing you? You see, it's not this idea that the rich person came in one day and they found the average church person and they did something to make their life a little, little bit intolerable, a little bit uncomfortable. But this word oppress, when we come across this, is this idea that these people are actively working to make your life miserable. These people are actively working to make your life uncomfortable. But yet, based on something you hope to receive from them, you're trying to tarry favor from them. He goes on, he says, this is not the person that drags you into court. You see, there's some idea 
when you read through commentaries on this, that the rich people are, are paying off the courts. They're doing things to try and take lands from the, the people in this church. They're doing things to try and influence the court system to see judgments be more favorable towards them. James says, man, these people oppress you. They're using the law system against you. And then he builds up to the crescendo. He says, these people you're trying to tarry favor with, they blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. These people look at your faith and they're not impressed. These people look at your faith and they ridicule it. These people look at your creator and they speak ill of him. These people look at Christianity and they, they deride it. They do things not in an effort to glorify God. They do things in an effort to glorify self. They do things in a way to tear down Christianity and build themselves up. Why in the world do you seek to elevate these people? These people are opposed to the gospel. And then he continues on in verse 8 and 9. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law of Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He stops him. He says, I want you to understand that if you're living in accordance with the, the rule of life that Jesus brought and lived out as, as an example, you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do that, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. You see, there's some idea that these people didn't think partiality was such a big deal. They didn't think that, that merely favoring one group over another was something to be all that worried and all that upset about. What's the big deal? We just like certain people more than others. What's, I mean, what's the, what's the big idea, really? I mean, I just I find myself more comfortable speaking to engineers as opposed to the unemployed. What, what's the big deal, anyway? I mean... I'm a lawyer. I like to talk about the things of the law with other people that have similar interests, similar, similar ideas. What's the problem with that? James stops them in their tracks. He says, you say you love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're showing partiality, you're violating the law. You're sinning. And then he continues to intensify it. In 10 and 11. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. He says, If you do absolutely everything right but you fail in one point, you're responsible for the whole thing. You're responsible for the whole thing. He says, For who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder, speaking of Moses. He says, But if you commit adultery, if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. Now, we realize that Jesus intensified this. In Matthew 5, 27 and 28, Jesus, speaking on the subject of adultery, said, Hey, look, if you look at a woman in such a way as to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. You've already committed adultery. You've already sinned in that regard. John, writing in 1 John three fifteen, speaking on the subject of murder, said, If you... If you hate, if you hold hate in your heart for your brother, then you are guilty of murder. He wasn't just speaking in hyperbole. He's speaking in, in connection with the law and saying that you are a murderer. 
As far as the law, as far as God's reference as he looks to you, that you are culpable, you are guilty, you are a transgressor. He's drawing to them the, por- the importance of not, having impar- of not having partiality in your hearts, of not being a body of people that are shaped and shaded by our views on, on who we think is worthy of the gospel, on who we think is worthy to be a member here, on who we think is worthy to sit with us in the pew, and who we think is worthy to do life with us. And he's driving at the idea that it is not our call. Because the very matter of the fact is none of us are worthy of the gospel. But Jesus comes in. And he elevates us. And he makes us worthy to be called Christ followers. By his infusion of grace into our lives. So then he turns around at the very end and he gives them. He gives them a way to act. He gives them the so what of this passage in verses 12 and 13. He says, essentially, based on all this, based on the fact that there could be no partiality with you, so speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. He comes in and he says, hey, look, the pattern of life that Jesus laid down in Matthew 22, 37 and 38, he said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And that we need to, to love the Lord God, Right? And then he said, the next one's like it, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. He says, as you do these things, you're fulfilling the law of liberty. But so speak and so act. James is driving at the point when, when faith is met out in the marketplace. He's driving at the point when faith is met out in the details of life. So speak. James has a lot to say about the manner of our speech. James has a lot to say about about keeping our tongue in check. And so he turns to that. He says, every time you go out, every time you engage people, allow your speech to be seasoned with grace. Don't judge people in the way that you speak to them. Don't have one manner of speaking to people you like and another manner of speaking to people that have all of a sudden made the list that you keep of people that you don't enjoy carrying on conversation with. So speak as those who are judged. He says, and so act. Allow the pattern of your life, the way that you engage people, the way that you work with your employees, the way that you respond to your employer, the way that you meet people in your neighborhood, the way that you meet even the neighbor whose kid plays electric guitar at 11.30 at night when nobody needs to do that. I mean, why? So speak and so act. James is calling that our faith should make a difference in our lives, that our faith should not be met out in simply maintaining a belief system, but that our faith should move beyond belief to action. How is your faith impacting your action? In verse 13, James writes, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. So James looks at our life and says, Look, when you have a charitable attitude towards those around you, then God is charitable towards you. And the most gracious thing is that God has been so incredibly charitable towards us that he lavished the love of Christ upon us. 
that each of us in this sanctuary today have become such egregious transgressors of the law that there is nothing good that we could do to redeem our lives. But God did the only good thing in sending his son Jesus to die for us. That as we accept his free offering, his free sacrifice offering to cover the stain of sin that, that so badly mars our lives, that we can have forgiveness in him. You see, James writes to us, and he gives us a simple command. He says, as you go out and as you live your life, show no partiality. But there are those of us that sit here today and they say, you know what? I don't value one person over another according to how much money they have. And so you start making a way for yourself to be elevated. You start making a way for yourself to say, well, this isn't such a big deal to me because it's, you know, whatever. I'm kind of a middle-income earner, I give money to the poor, and I've got some friends that are very affluent. I love them both equally. You see, but then you start evaluating your life. See, James isn't just writing to the one position of having partiality in terms of money. James is talking about partiality all the way across the board. And for most Christians, where this gets uncomfortable is in terms of virtuistic partiality. You see, we're very comfortable being around those Christians that have the same pet sins as we do. So maybe you struggle with pride. And so you think, man, I can be around other people that struggle with pride. Because pride's not such a big deal. It's, it's just a small sin. But then we start thinking back on the things that James said. To violate one is to violate them all. Or maybe you say, well, I can handle these things, but the sin of homosexuality, I just can't take. We say, I'm sorry that you struggle with that. But the gospel's not for you. The gospel's not for you. So we're very clever at making distinctions that Scripture doesn't bear testimony to. Because the fact is, you and I are all transgressors. And that we all find forgiveness in Christ. And there's no partiality with God. And there should be no partiality in us. James's command echoes still, show no partiality because it is opposed to the gospel. So today as we come together, we think through three questions. Each of us has uh, those we would consider to be neighbors. The New Testament gives us a pattern that even those who the world might consider to be our enemies are in fact our neighbors. But when you think of a neighbor, who is a neighbor in your life that is in need of love? As I said, we're very clever and we disguise the things that we struggle with, but what area of your life are you exercising partiality in? That's that you would seek God's face, that you would ask forgiveness, that you would repent of those actions. And then lastly, how are you living out your faith? James's instruction is that we should so speak and so act. What is God calling you to? How are you responding in obedience to the commands of your heavenly Father? How are you responding in faith to God as he calls you into a life rendered in submission to him? Let me pray for us.